0: Hello everyone, and welcome to the Learn to Lead podcast brought to you by Ability, an experiential learning company based in beautiful Austin, Texas. I'm your host, Matthew Confer, and today on the show we have Wesley Gray, who is the CEO of investment management firm, Alpha Architect. He is also a former captain in the US Marine Corps, and he holds a PhD and MBA from the Chicago Booth School of Business. Thanks so much for joining us today, Wesley. I appreciate it, Matt. It's an honor to uh, be on the show. While you were at the Booth School of Business, you took a sabbatical to join the Marine Corps. You ended up spending four years in the Corps, eight months, Mm -hmm. which included a deployment in Iraq. So first off, thank you very much for your service. And can you start off today by taking our listeners back to that period of your life and explain the process of taking a sabbatical to join our armed forces? Sure. So... um Obviously,
1: that's uh, not a, a standard path to, uh, to you know, drop out of a Ph.D. program in finance to you know join the Marine Corps. Um, but really, w- what had happened there is I'd always wanted to do the service uh, as a little kid. And it was just a matter of timing. Right. So, you know, I got out of high school, got into college. Well, I was, I'll, I'll go to college. That sounds like a good idea. Um, and then when I got out of college, I got into the Chicago Ph.D. program which in particular with finances is, is like a big deal. And I was like, well, I can't go join a service now. Cause I got to go do this PhD program. And then, you know, after the first two years of a PhD program, it's, you know, first two years is basically like hazing, right. You're just studying your face off like, you know, 15 hours a day. I, I was like, all right. Um, I'm going to pass the, the two-year mark, uh, and then you, you get to a stage called uh, ABD, all but dissertation. So it's kind of a natural break in PhD programs. And I just thought, hey, it's now or never. Um, so what I did is I went down to the, um, the PhD director, and just by dumb luck, her husband had been in the service for 20 years. And I mentioned the idea, and she's like, listen, like you guys are only allowed to have a one-year break from the program, not four. Um, but this is obviously a unique circumstance. I'll make it happen. Go get your advisor's approval. And if they sign off, we'll, we'll hold a spot for you. So she made it happen. And then, yeah, I left for four years, did my time and it came back. That was in 2004 and then came back 2008 and then, you know, relearned calculus and how to do math and <laughs> finished my dissertation
0: off in 2010. Wow. One of the things that I read about you is while you were in Iraq, you were actually assigned to a team that trained Iraqi soldiers. And many of the individuals that you trained had no Mm -hmm. military background. How did you approach that specific challenge?
1: You know, honestly, the, the number one thing I would say that was useful for me is empathy, which generally I'm terrible at. And Marines, you know, speaking broadly, aren't great at. Uh, you know, we're not known as the empathetic bunch. But one of the things that when I was started working with those Iraqis, like we were literally embedded with the Iraqi battalion. And you start hearing their stories and just listening. I mean, these people are basically screwed, right? Like, you know, they've been war-torn country. They don't have any food. They're just trying to feed their families. And you hear about their background where some guy will be like, yeah, I was a kindergarten teacher. And now I got an AK 47 here. It just, unless you're maybe, you know, a maniac, like to me, I was, I just felt bad. I was like, man, I gotta, we gotta help these people out, man. Like these guys uh, situation is 10 times worse than my own. So for me, it was much more not like, Hey, you need to be Marines, you know, because that's what that we want everyone to be is like, you gotta be this hardcore, like, you know, professional soldier. And, and I kind of stepped back and said, listen, like given the context of what these people are dealing with and their reality, I'm just going to help them get to a competence level that is reasonable for their circumstance. Um, so so that was very helpful for me, just a lot of listening and just being empathetic to the, their unique situation, which is very, very different than our own as uh, obviously uh, American citizens.
0: The the one thing that really resonates with me is now that you find yourself in a boardroom or in corporate America, there was an article about your time in Iraq and it talked about the leadership principle of officers eat last and how that impacted your time and your perspective. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about the impact that perspective has had on your career?
1: Sure, so, so officers eat last is, is another Marine Corpsism and the basic concept there is that, that if you're in charge leading people, the relationship is not like you're the, like the business, you know, the boss and everyone is your slave. It's more like you're the servant, you're there to take care of your people to make them successful. And so one of the things that, you know, figuratively and literally what happens in marine corps is if, if you're, you know, it goes by rank. So the lowest rank people eat first, the highest rank, people eat last to emphasize this ethos of you're there to help serve the, the people that work under you. Um, and I don't know, just, just from being led a lot, like, like I always had a lot more respect and willingness to work hard and, you know, get stuff done when the person in charge of me, I really felt like they were looking after my best interest and they weren't, you know, trying to steal everything or hog the resources, but they're actually like helping me get better. So I, I don't know I just thought officers eat last was a you know great mantra to live by it worked well when I was you know serving under people and so I just thought it was a good idea to deploy that in my own uh, leadership to just make sure you you know take care of your people and make sure that you know the officer eat last eats last that's uh, seems like a common sense idea uh, in my experience.
0: One question that we get from a lot of listeners is focused on communication techniques. And I can only imagine that being deployed to Iraq brings with it a, a whole host of challenges, one of them being communication in nature. Did you pick up anything there specifically from a leadership perspective that you still, that still sticks with you today?
1: Yeah, a ton. So, so one of the things that's really important, especially in like Arab world, And broadly, especially now with like global uh, international business, is just really having a keen understanding of cultural nuance and and essentially having a high emotional IQ. Because there's certain things that, you know, you might do as an American where in another part of the world, you know, even if you're the best leader, hardest worker, you know, most competent individual on the planet, if you say something or do something that is offensive, you're just done. And so, one of the things I would say, uh, especially dealing in a totally foreign culture like that, I used to be an intelligence officer. Is I would set up the kind of the battle space, as they would call it in the Marine Corps, where where you where you're battling on is like the human terrain. Like we were we really weren't in like a shoot 'em up business as much as when you're embedded as a trainer to help another military get better. Really, what you're battling with is like the other people and trying to get them to do stuff that you like them to do and the easiest way to you know be able to push someone's buttons is to make them feel like you're part of their culture you understand where they come from and the simple example there i guess is you know one thing in, in like arab culture in particular is the language is a big deal because it's religious in 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 you know how important it is like here like okay speak english spanish like who cares but there, like Arabic, it's like, you know, came from a law, right? Like this is a big deal. And so if you know that and you know that language is such an important piece of their society and culture, it probably behooves you that you might want to spend a little time at least learning some of the language because it will show to them that you put in an effort, right? And this is especially important there, as opposed to just, you know, saying, Ah, eh, screw it, I'm you know, I'm the guy in charge here, like let's speak English. So little things like that, just knowing the cultural terrain, uh, I always thought was a a good way to be a better, more effective leader, especially in contexts that are very foreign to your own.
0: I definitely want to shift forward a bit and even learn about how some of those lessons impacted you when you were founding and and in a leadership position at Alpha Architect. Can you take us back? Mm the early stages of this organization that you now run and talk about yeah. how that impacted things?
1: Well, sure. So, and, and actually the, the way our firm got built and a lot of the my challenges there are actually related to the challenges I had actually dealing with you know Iraqis, trying to train them up. And so quick backstory on how our firm got started is in 2010, when I, I went on, I got my PhD and then I went on the professor job market I got a job at Drexel, which is a Philadelphia university here, but simultaneous to getting a professor job, I literally got cold call from a billionaire um, who'd been reading my blog of all things and and I kind of started moonlighting on this consulting business and and it was one of those tug of war things where I was like, "Wow, I got the best job in the world being a professor, but I got a billionaire you know who's <laughs> asking me to help him on finance stuff that 's also pretty cool. And then after like four or five years into that gig, I ended up resigning my professor job and went full-time into the, you know, to our asset management business, which was essentially started by this, um, you know, or seeded up by this huge family office out of New York. So that, that just gives you the context of how, how that started. Now, one of the challenges of both being embedded with the Iraqis and in our business is that transition from being a doer to a facilitator. Right. So like when I was with the, uh, the Marines and uh, I was with the Iraqis, like you're so used uh, as someone who's like super competent in your job, you want to show people how good you are at it. And, and sometimes that means you're not the best coach or, or trainer. And so you want to tell the Iraqis like, no, this is how you do it. You know, uh, this is the way it's got to be instead of saying like, Hey, show me how you do it. And I will help you get better and help facilitate your growth. Um, cause a lot of people have that doer mindset first and then they get positioned into like a leadership position. So I obviously had that challenge in the Marines dealing with Iraqis. And then at some point, you know, I can't be doing everything. I've got to like help, you know, get teammates. And now I, instead of being a doer, I got to be a facilitator and help my other people do well. And that's something I still struggle with, right? Like I still want to get in the weeds and like program and like do all the, you know, geek out on like the finance stuff. But, I, and I just got to remember like, no, that's why you have people uh, <laughs> work here, train them to do that. So I could spend more time, you know, building relationships or, you know, selling products or whatever. Um. So, so that that's really been the biggest challenge is just how, how do you transition from a, like the doer, the getter done mentality to ha- helping other people get things done, and, and that's something I'm still in the middle of figuring
0: out, to be frank. Hmm. Um, one, one thing on your website that stuck out to me was your mission statement, and your mm-hmm. has distilled it to one sentence, and it is, our mission is to empower investors through education. So why is education so vital in your field or in any field?
1: Yeah. So, so in our field in particular, um, like finance and investing is one of the biggest challenges is there's an information asymmetry, right? Like the consumer doesn't know anything, but the professional who usually has a conflict of interest to sell grandma, whatever maximizes their profits, you know, you have this information asymmetry issue, which means historically that grandma gets screwed by buying way overpriced, ridiculous you know, financial products that make no sense. So we don't want to be like that. And we thought that, hey, you know, we're all about transparency, helping people actually understand what the heck is going on. So, yeah, we're the professionals. We got the PhDs. Well, you know, we we obviously got to kind of lead and, and help educate them. But we want the consumer or the client to actually know what they're buying before they buy it because we think in the end, especially in the context of finance and investing, that if you don't really understand what you're doing, you're going to end up making worse decisions down the road. So we just decided that it would make sense to preload that education up front and focus on that. So whoever comes into our product or investment, it, it, they're going in with eyes wide open. And yeah, that's a pain in the ass up front because we have to invest a lot of time and effort to to train people and teach them what's going on. But we think it'll it pays dividends or long haul because they end up with better outcomes. And then we have a, you know, more long-term sustainable relationship. So that's at least why I like it in our context.
0: As the CEO and a leader of people, how do you organize your day to kind of maximize your productivity? And how has that changed over the years?
1: Well, so it's changed a lot. So I used, well, I'm still kind of hardcore, but I used to be like insane. a good example is like last year, I did this thing called Leadville 100. It's like a hundred mile race in the you know mountains. We're basically got to like run like, you know, 20, like a marathon every day. I mean, it's insane. And so in, in that world, and that was before I was 40, now I'm 40 and maybe I'm having a midlife crisis or whatever, or maybe I got burnt out, but I was just, everything was so organized, like checklists, like it was just crazy and it worked. And I don't know what happened, but just this last year, maybe it's the COVID stuff. Uh, You know, my family's around a lot more. I I just, I I became a lot more chill. Like I'm still, I still have routines. I still wake up early, get my stuff done. But I just, it's not as important to me that I'm I'm doing everything on the checklist. And and again, I don't know exactly why that happened, probably because of COVID. But I think in the end, it's been a serendipitous finding because as you would expect, like, if you're so worried about everything, so regimented, so hardcore, so checklist driven, that drives a lot of stress. If you don't hit the checklist. And now that I got a little bit more, I guess, Montessori uh, approach to my, to my stuff, uh, it's regimented, but it's flexible. And I don't get bent out of shape if I don't wake up at like exactly this time and forget the run it, you know, so I'm not being lazy, but I, that ability to have flexibility has kind of lowered my overall stress. Um, And it just seems like I'm getting just as much done, but with, you know, a lot less chaos and stress involved. So I think I'm going to continue on this routine of kind of regimented, but not really.
0: What do you look for as you've grown in organization in future leaders? If you had to give advice to either Mm -hmm. yourself or people younger in their career, what would be some of the things that you would advise them to focus on? I mean. I'm not a
1: leadership coach like you guys are. I mean, for me, it boils down. like So there's, I don't know if you're familiar with uh, Dan Kahneman, but he has this really cool book called Thinking Fast and Slow. And essentially, he maps the mind into two parts. System one, which is that emotional, like, you know, you see a hamburger, you want to eat it, or someone pisses you off, you want to get revenge immediately, like kind of that animalistic part of your brain. And then there's system two, which is like that, super even keel, like logical, rational, you know, low stress type of mindset. So what I look for, it's kind of like what they do in the service as well, is I want to identify people who are really good at maintaining their system too in all stress situations. So I'm throwing a grenade at you. I'm shooting at you. You're still rational. You're not getting pissed off. You're not making bad decisions. You're just cool as a cucumber under duress. That's my number one thing that I focus on because just that simple test, like can you handle or can you be an effective decision maker in total chaos? If you can do that, you could pretty much do anything. Like I can go give you a calculus book that you don't understand and you'll figure it out. Like, so I just have a strong belief that people that can maintain even keel and chaos have ability to just get things done and lead and make stuff happen. So, yeah. So, I mean, we, we run this crazy, like, kind of physical hazing event. Uh, it, it's for a good cause it's called March for the Fallen. It's a 28-mile ruck march. And I actually recruit through that. Like, we, we invite a bunch of people from financial services out there. And what I kind of do is, hey, if there's someone out there hustling, whooping it on, and they can deal with, like, some crazy physical punishment event – and still be kind of cool and have maintain a positive attitude. That's almost for everyone that we've ever hired or dealt with. They, they don't know that, but that's kind of my secret little recruiting tool. And it, it really just boils back to, you know, can you make decisions under duress and deal with a lot of pain, but still keep a positive attitude? But I'm not saying that's for everyone. That's just my unique quirk, I would
0: say. Well, Wesley, I have really enjoyed this. This is the first conversation that I've had of many that have talked about 100-mile races in the mountain and Daniel Kahneman. So this has been a a true pleasure. Um, I do want to save some time for our final two questions that we ask our guests, um, which is the first one is this. If you could describe your personal leadership style in one word, what would that word be? Uh, I would say servant. And the final rapid fire question is this. What is the best piece of advice that you have ever received?
1: Stay positive, baby.
0: Well, servant leadership and staying positive. This has been an absolute pleasure. Thanks so much for joining us. Where can our listeners find out more about you? Uh, Probably best our website, just alphaarchitect.com
1: or on Twitter, Twitter slash alphaarchitect, same as the website. Those are are the the two places that we populate most.
0: Awesome. Well, thank you for all the great insight. And thank you to all our great listeners for joining us. If you enjoyed today's show, we would love a rating and review in your podcast app of choice. And we truly appreciate it when you share our show with your network. You can find me on social media at Matthew Confer. You can find our show on Instagram at Learn to Lead Podcast. And you can find our organization, Ability, at Ability.com. Be sure to subscribe so that you get our next episode, and I wanna thank all of you for joining us on the Learn to Lead podcast.